Welcome to Mama Talk Talks, A Different Take, a podcast where everyday people around the globe share a different take on everyday issues. I'm your host, Abi Mambo, and I'm pleased you're joining us today. Welcome. Hello, guys. How are you? Awesome. So How are I- you? I know every single time I do this show, I say how excited I am. But today, I've got two of the most opinionated, smartest, engaged men that I know personally. And we're going to be talking about masculinity. And I know as a woman, I have a lot of questions about what it means to be a man in today's world. So on the show today, in Chicago, we've got my big brother, Asanji Fon, who is a, a database administrator in Chicago. And I've got my longtime friend, Joshua Bird, who is a, a lawyer and a professor. But as I always do on a different take, I ask the guests to introduce themselves. So starting with you, Josh, tell the audience who you are. All right. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a brother first uh, and a son, native of Atlanta, and I'm someone who's aiming to save myself, and that is I live my life every day just trying to make a difference in that type of impact that I always yearn for and look for as a child. And so uh, just an African-American male or an African male here in the United States looking to do good, be good. (laughs) I caught that. I caught that. African-American male or African male in America. I love that. And Harry? I'm privileged to be the hostess elder brother. I live in uh, Illinois, moved out here from Oklahoma. Yeah, I work IT uh, consultant, DBA, ARCO predominantly. And like Josh, I am also uh, an African that happens to be in America. This is home, although I still have a home back in Cameroon, but I do call this home and I'm trying to make Chicago home. So. I'm looking forward to enjoy the show. I'm a very engaging person. You know your big brother, so it should be an interesting show. <laughs> yes, yes. Especially since you said that you give shout outs to yourself. So <laughs> I love hey, it already. <laughs> so we cannot start giving the state of the world today without talking about the coronavirus. I'm just going to start there as a quick check-in for how you both are doing. So how are you doing? How are your families doing, your communities in the wake of the coronavirus? It's a change. It's a different take where we we're, have been locked down since Wednesday of last week. I get to work from home, so it's really nothing new for me. It's just that now I have done it for seven days or so straight. And with the kids at home, it's a little different. I'm having to hide in closets <laughs> to have my meetings because <laughs> I'm looking for a quiet space. So it's fun to have them around. They think they're on holiday. And then it's also trying to get them into uh, a program that keeps them into an educational atmosphere. So it's really hard. And then we've been scared to go outside because they said, we locked, uh, don't come outside. But we ran out of food. We ran out of supplies. So, of course, we had to go out. And life looks very normal going outside. So we are taking all necessary precautions or washing your hands really not getting into some unnecessary contacts, keeping it at a minimum, uh, the social distancing. So we're doing all of those precautions. I mean, I have a nursing background. I used to be a nurse. So we're applying all of those things and uh, staying, trying to stay safe. Good, good. You keep my nieces safe. So Harry has got four daughters, 
which becomes yes. so, so important as we're having this conversation and we'll come back to that. So what about you, Josh? What's going on with the coronavirus pandemic in Atlanta? Yes, in Atlanta, there's a bit of the of a delay. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. So here in Atlanta, of course, I'm not far away from the Center for, for Disease Control, the CDC. We're experiencing the same type of thing as they are, of course, in Chicago. Uh, the governor has issued a state of emergency. And uh, similar to uh, Mr. Harry, I have a background in emergency preparedness and response where I worked in public health. And so I have a little experience with this. When I served in public health, it was H1N1. Yeah. And so my motto in trying to educate the public had been, don't be scared, be prepared. Mm-hmm. And so just trying to take that approach now, but it is crazy. Uh, folks have been quarantined. We have entire cities who have uh, you know, in- installed curfews as of Friday, it was my first day working from home yeah. uh, all day. And uh, that was uh, challenging. My wife has been doing it all week and uh, the two kids. And so it's it's uh, it's a challenge, but it still is a blessing to be able to work from home. And so it's not a complaint, but it is a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. So we're not under quarantine here in Singapore. Hallelujah. But we've been under restrictions of some sort since I think mid-January or third week of January. And um, a lot of it, for me, the way it's affected me, a lot of my work is in Shanghai. So I used to travel to Shanghai quite a bit. And I haven't been there, you know, since everything. And so we're trying just to, to be sane. And I look to my colleagues in China who were on quarantine or at least stayed in their homes for two months. And that's from where I draw inspiration is how do you do that for two months as a nation and still come out? I mean, they would get on calls from home like gangster, right? Just on it, doing their work. And I'm sitting here thinking, if I stay in this house one more again. (laughs) So the one thing I personally feel about this whole pandemic is a lot of times we talk about how different we are. If you look at the state of the world today, whether it's America or American politics or the external landscape, it's a lot of division and difference. And we act like we're so different and we're not connected, right? And then something like this hits. And the one thing I thought about was, how is it that something that started in one country has spread to the whole world? And now that that has happened, how can we think that we're not so connected as human beings? So for me, that has been the biggest point of reflection is, whether I like it or not, I am my brother's keeper, I am my sister's keeper. And literally, depending where I sneeze, I can affect my brother or my sister, right? There was a time when that was not a real thing. It's a real thing now. So anyway, we're doing good in Singapore. We're healthy. We're safe. We're being very mindful of all the rules and the restrictions. But I just wanted to start the show acknowledging that the world looks a little bit different today than it did two weeks ago in the U.S. and two months ago in China. So having said all that, we're going to be talking about masculinity. I'm real curious I've always wondered what's going on in men's heads. I like to understand how people think, and I cannot wait to hear what you all have to say, but let me start here. There is something that you all get told, which is be a man. When you hear that, and think back to when you were a little boy, then a teenage boy, then a young man, and then now a grown man, what did be a man mean to you? And today, when somebody says be a man, what does that mean? Just sure, you, you want to take that first, Harry? <laughs> okay, I'll try. 
strangely enough, I, I just wrote on my Facebook today that man up. This guy was crying all over social media, and I said he needed to man up. That's what I wrote. Be a man for me means that you need to be able to to hold some emotions. You know, it's it's tough. Real life is tough. I mean, I think that we need to be able to have people who are strong, who can handle certain situations. We cannot have everybody crying and being emotional and breaking down. At some point, you need somebody that can step in and handle the situation. And if, if it's the woman that needs to step up, then we'll, we'll say be a man and the woman steps up and handle the situation. But if there's a man in that occasion, if there's a man in that situation, you're expected to be like, you need to step up to the plate. You need to be the leader. You need to be the one that's handling this particular situation. So for me, that's what be a man means, that you need to keep your emotions in check. I mean... It's hard. It is okay to cry. It's okay to let... But there are times where wrestle that emotion together, put it in place, and do what you need to do. Do what needs to be done. You need leadership in every situation, and sometimes you just need... Somebody needs to... I don't have I don't have sons, so I don't have the, occasion, the ability to tell my kids that be a man. So I have to raise my daughters in that light. But I'm sure down the road we'll talk about this. But if I'm sitting with my friend... And he's dealing with a situation that I think that he needs to be able to, to toughen up. I'll tell him, you need to be a man. You need to get it together. You, so what, crying and whining you, is not going to solve the problem. You just need to man up. So would you say that if, it's the same, if you're having that same conversation with a woman who's your friend and she's crying, would you say man up? It depends. It depends the circumstances, right? But let's, Again, let, let's I, take I, the I, one you... Because I'm trying to understand I, I, what man up means. So is it so a function? So with a woman, for me, for example, if if we've established that, okay, that's the situation, let's look for a solution, right? And we're still in this emotional phase. After we've established, we've had a time of grief, we've had a time of breakdown. It's okay to give somebody time to let it out of their system. And we're still going through the emotional phase. I'll be like, man up, get it together. We need to solve the problem, right? I'm not sure I'm going to use man up for a woman, but I would say, hey, Brittany, you need to get it together. And we'll come back to that because that's exactly it. If we associate manning up with courage and with strength and with leadership, where does that leave us when it comes to women, right? So I'm going to give Josh a chance to jump in here and tell us what he thinks about what it means to be a man. So I definitely, uh, in, in many regards, uh, second what Harry is saying. Uh, he mentioned leadership. He mentioned management, uh, management of emotions. Uh, he also mentioned just knowing what's going on and kind of having a plan on how, on how to handle it. Uh, from a Marine Corps perspective, and I've served in law enforcement as well, leadership was key. I think for a man, for me today, it means to lead, as Harry mentioned. It means to provide, as Harry mentioned. It also means to protect mm. and have a plan. And so those are things that I understand uh, being a man, you know, it's, it's all about. But I will say this, though, just to add to it. One of the endeavors I have is this initiative called Teach Us, Teaching Ethics and Cultural History mm -hmm. for Urban Stakeholders. And so I also understand that being a man is definitional and it depends on who you get your definition from. Wow. Yeah. And so in my experience, that's what being a man means in the culture that I grew up in. So, of course, it's going to vary. Uh, but but today, 
you know, what I guess in the 80s when I was born, early 80s, that's what being a man meant. As our culture changed, of course, those definitions are going to be revised and they're going to continue to change as well. I jumped real quick on what Harry said about being a man. As I understand you, and again, George, the context that you've put it in is law enforcement, you know, being in the Marines. Again, it goes back to strength. So when I think of it, of being a man, the juxtaposition I have that comes to mind is you kick like a girl or you act like a girl or you cry like a girl. Actually, no, you just cry because apparently men don't cry. So what is it that in your respective backgrounds, you understood that being a man meant in terms of the doing? So there's leadership, there's management. But at some age, at some point when you were a little boy, you started to understand that like in our household, I imagine Harry would have looked at me and not thought being a man was meant for me. So so where is this coming from, this whole notion of being a man? And why is it that both of you won't use a phrase like that when talking to a woman, even if you intend the same thing, which is manage your emotions, take charge of the situation? Well, again, I would say culture. I mentioned that I'm an African-American or an African living in America. And the culture that I grew up in, it was really incumbent upon us as males to be protectors and providers the way I grew up. And so with that expectation in me being the one son, and I have four sisters and a mm. mom, and for a while I grew up with uh, no father in a home and then a father in a home, we have a role as women. You are different. And so I spent my early childhood trying to understand what that difference was And as I gathered and collected it from various sources, not just one, not necessarily from a father figure, it was to be a protector. It was to be the provider that was not currently providing. And and in ways that was not necessarily leadership, because of course my mom demonstrated the leadership uh, because she held everything together, but it was a different type of strength that my mother seemed to uh, wish for or seek or that my sisters ultimately Mm -hmm. Look to. And so as I sat up late at night and kind of sat in and on the girl talk before they kicked me out, <laughs> I would just kind of pick up bits and pieces. And it was like, this is what I'm looking for. Yeah. And so based on what the women were saying, I said, okay, if you're saying this, then this is what I need to do. And Got so it. again, I think it's about definitions and where do you get your definitions of being a man from? I received mine from four sisters, a mother, and then from various institutions such as the military and law enforcement, and then later from a couple of family members and and teachers. And Harry, what about you? Where did you get your definition of manhood from? Well, we grew up in the same household. And, you know, uh, like Josh just said, we had a father and we had a mother. But we had a father who would not sit us down. He did not bring it down and say, this is what you, ne- you guys need to do. And this, he was always traveling and doing stuff. So he was there when he was there. He provided. But that leadership, remember, we always went to it. We always drifted to it, the mother. Yep. I think for me, instinctively, as I grew up and I went to boarding schools, we were taught that I, I went to a single-sex school for one year. Then I went to a co-ed school with boys and girls that we needed to lead. And as I grew up, I, now that I'm, I'm finding out about all of this equality thing, I, as, as much as I'm poor. I'm sorry, I just had to know the equality thing. That, okay, <laughs> that was the whole other conversation, but carry on. <laughs> the equality thing. We, we're in this space. Yeah, because it's, I think that when they say equality is, is 
translating into saying a woman is exactly as strong as me in terms of physical strength and stuff. I mean, there are women that could probably, that will beat me up. Let me not say probably that beat me up. Fair and yeah. square, right? <laughs> yeah, so that, that's not debatable. So, but the thing is, is that, like, for me, I, I had to see that I, I was the, I'm kind of like in that household, I'm kind of like the first son. I have an elder sister, but I'm, I'm the son that even mom used to say, you know that you're the firstborn son and there are things that you're doing now that you shouldn't be doing because you have to be a leader, you know? Yep. I was the quote-unquote bad kid and stuff like that. So mom what? would sit me you down. Still and are, you still are, I'm just saying. <laughs> mom would sit me down and she would cry. She would basically say, I expect a lot from you. I expect you... And those were my worst times because I wanted her to beat me up. Like, just beat me and get this thing over your system and then I'll go do it again. But when she sat me down and said, listen, I expect a lot from you, it had to make me think, and I hate it. I didn't like to. I didn't like to cross that emotionality. All she was trying to get me to do was understand that you're a leader. You have to lead by example. Uh, you cannot be here, and your sisters are the ones doing everything and all of that stuff. So I grew with all of that in the boarding school with mom pushing me. I don't think I've ever had this conversation with dad that this is you. You have to be a man, or you're crying, or none of that stuff. So yeah. Yeah, I just learned, I think, on the fly in school, uh, society, just connecting. And then here in America, that it's uh, that it's so big in the U.S. that, especially with when you, you're hearing all of the stories with people not with growing up in single-family homes and they're missing that father figure, yeah. and you're coming from a different culture, and you're seeing the importance. I have a daughter who is growing without a father. I can attest that maybe if she is... If, they ask her the question 10, 20 years from now, she would be saying exactly the same thing. So for me, it's just on the fly. It's just society, school, yeah. Yeah. mom. Yeah, so similar to Josh. I'm just sitting here listening to you, and we did grow up in the same household, and our experiences were so different. And what's crazy is I don't think we've sat down and talked about it. So our older sister and I have, but not with the boys, right? So I think from an early age, if we even look at how household responsibilities were shared out, the boys got to scrub the carpet and clean the living room, which is a social space. They got to sweep the yard and wash our dad's car, right? The girl, so my job was to clean our parents' bedroom, so an intimate space, interior, and we got to do the grocery shopping and to cook. And when guests came home, it was our job to lay the table and serve them and clear the table. And unless we had no brothers at home, if someone had to run to the store to buy a beverage for the guests, it was the boys who did it. At the time, I didn't think about that internal external division of labor, right? But as time grew, uh, went on, I started to notice that my brothers could cook to experiment. And I wrote about that recently. So whereas I, from the age of 10, 11, had to cook and cook for the family... If Harry got in the kitchen, because he, he really liked to try things, he was cooking to experiment. He was cooking to see what would happen if I mix milk and oil. Is it going to pop? Which he did and hurt his eye. Um, don't do it at home. But mine was not experimental. I was supposed to be cooking to feed the family. So it's very interesting for me how at a very young age, we started to learn about you know gender lines. But coming back to the topic of manhood, especially in America and being black men in America, I'm real curious to understand the stuff that you said you learned. And I want to talk about expectations. 
whether it's expectations from society, government, from women, from your partners, what are you experiencing are the expectations of being a man? I love it. If I come back again in another life, I want to be a man. I want my expectations to be bigger. I look at my wife, I look at my kids, and I feel like I haven't done enough, and I keep fighting every day. And is it easy? Is it is it a walk in the park? No. That's why I say you keep that emotions and you keep you keep grinding. There's no time for me to cry. There's no time for me to go. I call my friends up. I'm like, look, man, this thing is not easy, man. And he's like, man, I'm in your situation. We talk about it and we we tell our realities too. But that's the small space in which we can vent. Mm-hmm. But I cannot avoid not being the leader, not being the driver of my family. I have a vision of where. I want to go and I've sat with my wife and we've talked about it mm. and I have to be the driver driving that. And she has the the blueprint, right? So if I'm not there, she can pick up, but she knows that this is where we're going to. She agrees on the mission, but I have to, I'm forging ahead. I have the pickup truck and the plow and we're pulling off everything and we're, we're forging ahead. And, and I love that role. I cannot pass that on to my wife to, to when to pick it up when there's snow outside i live in chicago so snow is crazy i mean who is expected to go clean that stuff mm, mm. so I, in a house where they so they're all women they have to do it because that was the, that's the cards that they're dealt with but in my house i'm the only man so the muscular work i have to do it there's not a do not expect Nelly to go out in there and she, she's not even first of all gonna do it so we're gonna <laughs> stay in the snow <laughs> you know <laughs> It's going to feel into our bedroom and stuff. So it's it's just somebody has to step up. I know we want to play on that even equal and stuff. I don't run my house. My wife runs my house. Yeah. It's just like the captain of the ship does not run the bottom of the ship where that's where the engine is. Those guys in there run the ship, but the captain just makes sure the ship is flow, is floating, is going where it needs to go. And that's my house. My wife is the engine of the house. She... She dictates the pace. I just kind of guide it into the direction that we want to go. And that's just the little, little ship that we have. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Nothing else that we have. Everything from the design of the house, from this, where we have to go leave, where we... It's the woman making all of this decision, but somehow they have to be a little on top of that. And that masculine, that male figure, that male character happens to be the leader and People are going to scream patriarchy, and that's the aspect about patriarchy that I really love, that we should be the, <laughs> we should be the leaders driving this, this mission ahead. And there's nothing wrong with that. As long as everybody is, is agreeing, everybody is on par, the problem is when you're doing it selfishly and you think that because I'm a man, I own this and I'll do it my way. I think yeah. that's where the problem is. But when you guys, when your wife is with you, when your kids, because my kids really don't, have you know right now I have a seven she just turned seven and a five year old and the baby they don't have opinions they don't have um oh they oh they have opinions they have opinions it's just I have the veto power we're going this way and that's where we're going as they grow older I I release a little bit of power to them based on they it's a it's a married based household yeah so everything that comes if it doesn't work with uh, with daddy is regarding the kids it's just veto out so and then as you get more responsible, I release a little bit of power to you. I release a little bit of power. Unfortunately, they're girls, so they're growing up in a, in a, in a household with a man that has a strong vision of how the world should be. So that's how they're going to grow up. Okay. And Josh, 
I saw yeah, you nodding I mean, the whole time. Yeah, he, like, just... yeah he, he was, I almost feel like I live in his house. <laughs> 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 Look, my wife, she handles most everything. I mean, she manages most everything from the educational aspect. Uh, I think that for me, I, uh, you know, as a man, I understand my skill set. Yeah. And I understand that I am able to do what a woman does. I am able to do it, but I do it differently. Yeah. So my level of patience, empathy, sensitivity to children when it comes to education, I don't have the same. This is what we're doing and we're done talking about. <laughs> whereas, whereas she's a bit more understanding, except even though I'm an educator, she's an educator. Uh, I just have a different mentality. And so I know that that's not a strength of mine. That's that motherly connection. Yep. I actually attended a funeral today, and that was a big part of what they were talking about, the role of women from the book of Proverbs. And so I think that being a man for me, I like the analogy of the ship. I really love it because historically, I don't care what society you look at, someone needs to be able to protect Right. There's always a threat. Even today with all that's going on with coronavirus. Right. There is a threat. And we're calling upon individuals to protect in America, many parts of Africa. I'm sure that traditionally, not that it's right, but traditionally men have served that role of protecting so that what it means to be a man in masculinity, a lot of it is protecting. A lot of it is also providing I like to think about my understanding of uh, Native Americans here in this country, the indigenous folks, uh, indigenous people. And from what I understand, in many instances, it was even the women then with the early Europeans who were the only ones who were able to make contracts, right? So even in their structure, women had a leadership role and were able to make those same types of decisions that women are making in my household and perhaps Harris, Harris household with respect to making business decisions, doing certain things, but men still leading, but protecting, providing are definitely critical. And so as uh, Harry mentioned with respect to him being with women, I, when it comes to protecting and providing and things of strength, Joshua, my son is a junior, take the trash out. Any heavy lifting when it comes to the groceries, you get the heavier groceries, right? I teach him to cut the grass, to do those things starting at the age of seven, before he can really even push the lawnmower, I'm right behind him. And so all the things I understand that are necessary to provide for a family, that women, for if it's for strength or the lack of strength or just the culture dictates that women don't do certain things, I try to make sure that he emulates what I do. Now, it's really interesting to hear your perspectives. And the thing I keep coming back to in this setup is you grow with four sisters. Harry has four daughters. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, if we were raised and we were to believe that men should take that leadership role, what happens when a woman doesn't get married or doesn't have a partner for whatever reason or had a partner and the partner dies or whatever it is? In America today, we have a high number of single mothers. And so this whole notion, if I grew up knowing that, you know, the man is going to do the hard work, all right, you were saying something before before the pause there. Yeah, let me just round, round it up. Yeah, I was just saying that I think that the most important thing is to not worry about the top, but giving the kids, the, the male and female child, the resources that they need to succeed in a very demanding world because the world out there is very harsh and mm-hmm. not to overshelter or overprotect them. And I like the, the future that... 
Yeah, but I understood what he was saying. It, it almost sounds like he, where he was going was he likes the future that is being laid out for young men and women with just the youth in general in that now they're not necessarily confined yep. to a particular gender yep. role with respect to equipping them to be able to handle the challenges of society. And so uh, I too agree with that, but from a historical perspective and from the way we were raised, there were defined roles. Yep. And of course, here in America with things changing, you initially had men it was the law. Women could not work. That yes, was the law. That was the law. And now things are changing. And so as the laws change, now the roles and expectations change. And unfortunately, but the reality is that when the law changes, entire families and cultures don't just change with Overnight. them. It takes time to catch up. Yeah. It's an important difference, right? It's not that women could not work. It's that we're not going to pay women for the work exactly. that they did. Right. Exactly. And so exactly. that to me is what, you know, sometimes we talk about the whole equal pay discourse and, and you know, people go ballistic. And I'm saying, no, no, really, if we look at it, it is things like cooking and not uh-huh. things that we prioritize as much. Right. They're not when you say at home mom, as they say, or when you back then worked from home as women while the men went out to work, you know, it wasn't a profession. It wasn't a thing that people really thought was much of anything. But look at the world's chefs. This is the example I go back to, right? We're going crazy right with Jamie Oliver and all these people. And I'm like, I'm sorry. We've been cooking for centuries. So uh-huh. it's real interesting. But I know this is not really about women's rights, even though Harry tries to keep getting us there. I really want to get into the specifics of what it means. We're talking about what it means to be a man. What does it mean to be a black man or an African man in the American context? And, you know, I don't know, you know, Harry's perspective will also be really interesting on this because, Josh, you've been born, raised the whole nine yards in America and Harry has gone through two different spaces and masculinity may or may not have the same interpretations in both places, but I'll start with you. What does it mean to be a black man in America? For me, and I really like what Harry was saying, is that your job is never done. and You must always work because to a great extent, uh, for me, I feel as though we're endangered species. I look at where we've been, and as far as the black male that I have been taught to be, it is seemingly on the way out as far as being a provider, Mm-hmm. As far as being a protector, as far as being a leader, as far as being a willing to be a lifelong learner, as being a devotee spiritually to a spiritual system or concept, as an aggregate, you, you bring all those things together. For me, that's what it means to be a man. And it's defined by a culture that's rooted in spirituality. That is not necessarily the norm for most men who I know, but that's what it means to be a man. You're never done. It's about legacy. It's about providing for your family for generations to come. And that's not necessarily being taught. That's not necessarily being supported. And so for me, I feel it's really important to continue to go above and beyond and to leave a mark because men and masculinity in the way I was taught is a rarity and it's an endangered species type perspective I have of it. So that's a lot right there. Let me unpack it before we go to Harry. So when you talk about the fact that it's on its way out, where is it going? 
Why is it on its way out? And who's the architect of its exit? Absolutely. Yeah, great question. Well, you look at the Constitution, and as we were speaking a little while ago, uh, it, it had no mention. Black men, period. They did not exist as an entity in the United States Constitution until you have the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment, let alone women yeah. <laughs> having the right to vote didn't come into the 1920s with the, I believe, 19th Amendment. And so Black men, with respect to those who were free, for many years, and not all Black men were under the same umbrella. But for the African-American experience that I'm familiar with, kind of came on the scene after the Civil War. There was a great, many of them served in the military, mm -hmm. uh, Civil War, and every war that was fought on this continent. So service and protecting and fighting has been fundamental. Leading and being entrepreneurs or having an entrepreneurial spirit and providing was ingrained into what it meant. Protecting your family from Jim Crow South from, from things that stem from slavery, from hate, from that sort of thing. So protection, providing, leading, fighting, that's all what it meant to be an African in this country, especially as a male. And then working because of the laws, as you so eloquently put it, the laws did not dictate that women could be paid. And so for their service for a long time, and so you had to be that provider. Yep. And the reason that I say that it's on its way out is because so many things that were there from the beginning, and I'm actually reading a book called Stamp from the Beginning right now, but things that were there from the beginning are no longer in place. Now, women have been properly recognized as, as humans, properly recognized as individuals who have a voice and can vote. Now the laws have changed so that men and women, specifically Black or African men and women, have the right to work and have the right to vote. And also the gender roles have changed from a legal perspective. And so all the things that went into the DNA of what my great-grandfather knew to be a man, mm. that landscape in society has fundamentally changed. And so what it means to be a man, depending on you know where you come from, if you come into this country with a, a packed, boxed-up idea of being a man, that's great, and, and it's clear to you. But if you've been here, you've seen it change and evolve. And that's why I believe that it's almost becoming extinct because those things that supported this idea of masculinity are no longer part of the infrastructure in our society. That's a lot right there. I'll have Harry unpack some of that and inject into your own thoughts, Harry. Yeah, sorry for the disconnect. I was having some network issues. So Josh said a lot. Let me kind of add to it. <laughs> so one of the difference being a, a Black man in America, for example, is that Josh can trace his history to his great-great-grandfather in this country and the discrimination that has gone from that great-grandfather all the way to him. I don't have that same history. And most often I, I empathize because I see with my own eyes, I see the discrimination, I see the things that happen. Have I had experiences that are born out of that kind of situation? Yes, but I cannot take it back more than that incident that just happened. If I had a run-in with the law and I felt like the, the officer was discriminating against me because I was Black, yes, but I can only frame it within that context because I cannot go back since I'm not, in the sense of it, African-American. Although I'm African-American, but I'm not African-American. But so being Black for me in America as an African would be a little different from Josh being black in America, because one, this is home. He doesn't have a choice to go someplace else. I can say, you know what, 
my staycation in America is over and I go back to Cameroon. You know, I have another home that I can go back to if I feel like my treatment in America, I've amassed the education, I've amassed, so I can take these things that I've enjoyed in America and relocate anywhere else, but just doesn't have those luxuries. I mean, he can go as an expert in another country, but his, he will feel like he's running away from his home. Mm-hmm. I, on the other side, I can go home. I can go back to Cameroon and I'll be welcomed like a king. I came back home and I'll be treated with flowers and all that kind of stuff. So for me, being black in America is that, one, I have to take the opportunities that are afforded me. Those I cannot pass up on those opportunities. So uh, when I was going for my citizenship, one of, one of my friends said, there's so many doors that you can open. I know you have a green card, but there's so many things that you're limited when you have a green card. Don't hold on that green card. Go do your citizenship. And those are advantages for me. Josh was born with that citizenship. I acquired it. So I have to go get that citizenship to open me a certain door so that I can acquire more resources to give back to my family. All of this objective for me is to provide for my family, to protect my family, to give the best to my family that America has to offer. If I see an opportunity somewhere as an American, I want to go get it. And for me, that's what being Black in America, I cannot hang on. I know there's racial discrimination. I've been discriminated against. They've called police on me for varying reasons. But I can, like I said earlier, I can only focus on that particular, I cannot tell a story behind that, right? I don't have, my grandfather did not tell me something. My grand, my, my dad did not experience, my dad is he's also here. He's experiencing the same thing as I am, right? So our realities of being, uh, George has much more pain. He has a mountain to climb. He has to achieve this. He has to do that. I just have to survive. I, 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 and everything that falls as a benefit on Josh, I pick up a little crumble. I'm a black man and I'm under his umbrella and I'm benefiting from everything. If they give repatriation to every black man in America today, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm another black guy. Come on, send some down my way. So I get those benefits that come down my way and I have to make use because uh, I look at Josh's story, his grandfather, they fought for these things. I cannot come now and make light of it. I cannot come and not see this as an advantage, as an, as an opportunity for me to make sure that myself and Josh, we all succeed as black men in America. Yeah, I mean, both of y'all just went real, real deep with it. I was reading the news the other day and there's been a bit of a, an uproar in some circles about the nomination of, her name just escaped me, the woman who plays um, Harriet Tubman well, Josh, you know, you know who I'm talking about. I saw the movie. I, I, I don't remember her name specifically, but I did see the movie. So she's um, African, British, and there are a lot of people who were very, very upset that such an icon, right, an American icon, would be played by someone who was not an African-American woman. And those of us who came as immigrants, the argument was we, 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 that is not our history. Slavery in America is not our history. And so we don't understand what it takes, right? And they took it back to Lupita Nyong'o and her role in, you know, 12 Years a Slave and said, again, this is a Kenyan-Mexican woman. What does she know about the African-American experience? 
Now, the counter argument is, well, who played Nelson Mandela, right? It was not an African. So we can go back and forth with these things on the surface. But I think underneath that, I think what people are really talking about is a question of identity. Black maleness is not one thing. And the way you both define what it means to be black is informed by where you came from and what that community has experienced. For example, you know, when I first came to the U.S., I didn't understand the hype about we need a black president. Right. I'm like, uh, no, no, I don't I don't need a black president because I see what's going on in the African continent with the black presidents. I don't I think it's overrated. But then when when I was steeped in U.S. history, U.S. culture, I began to understand what that sentiment was. Now, the trick for me is I've got a 10 year old boy and he was born in America. He is American. He's Cameroonian by heritage. And now that he's 10, he's lived four years outside the U.S. So what is my child? So this question of identity abounds, right? Is he Cameroonian? Is he American? He's lived in South Africa. He's living in Singapore. So by the time we get back to the U.S., whenever that may be, who is he? What do I teach him? What version of masculinity do I teach him? Because masculinity in Asia means something a little bit different. It's very similar to in the African context. It's a little bit different. And Josh, you're, you're not here. I'm sure you know because Naj is Filipino, right? So there's that side of her family that the way masculinity plays up there is different. So I'm listening to you both going, okay, so what, 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 what version of that do I teach my child? Or do I just teach him to be a decent human being? What does being a decent human being mean? We all operate within a, a given context. Yeah, and I, and I say that there is no right or wrong way, but it does definitely depend. It depends on uh, time and place and, and, and that thing we call culture. And so uh, depending on which which culture you decide to steep uh, him into and to train him under is what's going to inform his ideas or rules of masculinity. And the uniqueness about the United States of America, North America, is that we have basically thrown out all the rules and we say whatever you want to do anything goes as far as as far as uh, as long as we vote on it and we pass the law that's what it is we have this thing called the separation of church and state whereas other societies don't they say no there's no separation of church and state this is a man's role this is a woman's role when the united states this definition of masculinity is going to differ because we say, well, you get to decide. And that's why I say, again, my understanding of maleness and masculinity Ooh, is you're about to get Harry started. Fewer individuals are, fewer individuals are deciding to live or, or identify with the way that I was taught. Mm, mm. You know, you know why Harry's looking like that? Because he, he can go for a whole day on the thing you just said about people getting to choose. Right. Um, so, Harry, get it out of your system before we move to the no, next no, part. No, of no. Let, let, let me come back to what you had just said earlier about uh, Cynthia Evo, Erivo. That's her name. Yes. Cynthia Erivo, Erivo. right? The, the British girl. And it's not, it, it was just a, it's a small group that has actually grown. We cannot make light of that group. They actually have an organization called American Descendants of Slaves. Yes. Right. So they're growing. So it's not just based off of this movie that they made one comment and then they went off about their business. So they have established and it's an organization that is seeing us as a threat. And the bulk of the African-American community 
it's not with them. It's still a very small organization. And they've said, listen, there's no need for us to fight against each other. We have differences. Like I said, Josh's reality is different from mine. But at the end of the day, we want to provide for our families. We want to succeed. We want this society to work for us. Uh, the white man, the Asian man. We are not, I don't necessarily think that we are We are fighting each other, although sometimes we do We do have to fight each other for survival because it's just that one spot and maybe they have to prefer the white guy to survive. And if, if I'm fighting Josh or if Josh is fighting me, that I'm taking milking out of the resources, which are plentiful, uh, it's out there for everybody to benefit. I think that we've derailed and we're missing out. So I'm evolving, Evie. And, and, and choice. <laughs> You're evolving from a few choice. months ago? <laughs> you have to. You know, there's pressure on you to change faster than, than you should change. Uh, <laughs> well, even if you don't want to, you have to also be mindful of some things that you say because it would be taken out of context. In America, especially, if you want to grow, which I still want to grow and succeed, I don't want to be that person that once I've built my app tomorrow and I'm a successful person and they're like, well, you hate this community of people and they find that one thing that you said and say, yes, this is what you said and they take it out of context. So, yes, there was a time where I, I felt like, no, this is how it needs to happen. But, of course, my vision has to be bigger than my little, small, narrow world, right? Let's be specific about what we're talking about because you and I had a separate conversation which Josh and the audience aren't privy to. So, Josh, when you talked about self-identifying, what we're talking about was people getting to, you know, identify as transgender, right? A trans man and trans woman. And Harry had some thoughts about it and some views about that a while back. And so that's what we're talking about. Just we're clear. It sounds like it is a sensitive topic, but I would be remiss. And especially for my female audience, if we don't talk about the male-female dynamic, and I'm talking relationships, I'm talking marriage, I'm talking how men and women show up. When we talk about being a man, we talk a lot about what our parents taught us, how we were at home, and our children. Now I'm going to go into a very special personal space. In your interactions with women, not just now, both of you are married happily with children. I'm curious, on your journey to here, what were the expectations you felt were put on you by women? Harry, I think you actually posted this on Facebook. It was a, it was a clip of a woman who seemed, she seemed real irritated. And she was talking about the fact that why is it that women expect the men they're dating to pay their bills? How do you remember this? And she was yeah, saying, she was saying, I don't get it. If you come into a relationship as equals, before he came along, you were paying your bills. Why do you expect him to pay your bills now just because, you know, you're having sex with him? And if, if that's what you want, then you're a prostitute. And that's good. You can be a prostitute. She's cool with that. But what is creating this expectation of men paying your bills just because you're in a relationship with them? And there was a lot of reaction around that. So I just want to put it to you both. When you come into relationships, into, when you came into your marriages, what were the expectations that you, know, you felt were put on you as a partner while you were a boyfriend, a fiance, and now a father? And how does that jive with what you think your role should be? With respect to me, I have to still go back to this idea of, there being a set of rules or there being a set of standards. 
right? So where I grew up, imagine there being a deck of playing cards that had the rules of what a man or male was supposed to do. I knew what those rules were. You know, regardless of where I gathered them from, I had them in my deck of cards. This is what it means to be a man. Similarly, women who grew up, my contemporaries, had that same deck of cards. You had half, here are the women rules, here are the men's rules. And so what happened in our lifetimes, we saw society change while we were still holding those cards that defined what our role should be. And so I have no issue, and I also have, I share the same sentiment with those women because my understanding from my father is that male should provide and you should provide overwhelmingly and you should provide so much so and it's been my desire to provide so that my wife doesn't have to work that's my ultimate goal so that i'm the ultimate provider and working becomes optional because that's how my father grew up because he grew up in a context uh, which you just described earlier where women were not paid necessarily for their services or yeah. for their work and so the deck of cards he gave me were that Here's what women can and can't do. Here's what men can and can't do. Be a man. And so now I go into a society and I'm looking at this deck of cards and it says that you should provide. But now all of a sudden women are now working as well. So what do you do? I can't unlearn what it means to be a man. So I'm still endeavoring to provide at that level. And and likewise, the women can't unlearn what they understand the role of a male to be. Mm. Although society has changed the rules. Mm. And so your expectations, as Harry uh, put it earlier, you still have these feelings in society just changed on you. And what do you do? And so it's, it's very critical to understand that. I don't think that most people uh, really look at it in a deep level yeah. because the media is always pumping out these roles. And so for me, I feel sad, depressed, inferior, less of a man, not a man when I'm not providing. Wow. Wow. Mm. That merits pause. Because I remember, as we were talking about coronavirus earlier, and there's been a lot in the press about how this is going to hit the global economy. And I'm just reminded about the housing crash in 2008 and what happened then in terms of people losing jobs. And there were a lot of studies that were done about that time where because a lot of men were in the workforce and were higher paid, when companies began laying people off, they laid off the higher paid employees who just so happened to be men, which meant women who were lower paid were being pulled into the workforce. And then now you had this change, right? Where you either had a working a working wife or female partner and a male who was not working, or you had a woman in a higher paying job. And for so many people, that dynamic threw a whole lot of things into a hot mess situation right and a lot of marriages that suffered from that some which actually never recovered from that so as you said that josh it just came to my mind that if things don't bounce back we may be seeing something similar to that and that's why i just paused there and took a deep breath because we all know what we saw in 2008 to 2009 and it wasn't pretty now harry where i want to take you to from what josh said is the dynamic where a woman is making more than a man whether you're married, whether it's a girlfriend, what does that do to to you as a man? If you find yourself in that situation, does it mean anything? Do you not care? Do you say, yay, wife, good for you? Or like, Josh, is it something that really distresses you? Okay, so that's a good question. Uh, for me, I'll tell you a little bit about my own story. For the longest time, 
I've been with Nelly for the better part of what, uh, eight years. And uh, for most of those years, I have always been the one making the top. Because even when we were both nurses, I had to get two jobs because I needed my income to double up hers <laughs> so that I'm able to to, to make... The, because I have I, the things that I, I want personally that I, I have to fight for it and I cannot just be content. And I, if I needed a bigger house, I needed a bigger space, if I needed a bigger car, if I needed bigger things, I would not look at my income. I'm just going to be like, babe, I'm going to go get another job and or I'll go get some other training or something. So that's how our family moved along until last month she got a new job where she's making more than me i'm happy for her because <laughs> she worked extremely hard and i saw her work hard for this job and uh, she got it and she was i looked at this, she told me what her pay i was like oh my goodness and um she's gone for very long hours now and then the responsibility is, is when we moved to chicago uh, I didn't have the need to work two jobs because I was fine. But so she cut back her hours of working, right? So she was, like Josh was saying, ultimately, if her decision, I always bring it back down to her. I don't want to be the one saying that I think my wife should be a stay-at-home woman. If she wants to be a stay-at-home woman and our finances are right, by all means, go for it. Um, So she was doing maybe two days and she was taking running the kids around school and everything. But now she's gone for all day. She goes before the sun, she goes at six, and she's usually it's her commute. It's not the work, it's her commute where she is at. Yep. And now I have to pick I have to pick up all of those things that she was doing. Yep. And like Josh said, uh sometimes it hits me how hard it is. Maybe I did not notice the work that she did in the background. Yep. And <laughs> I am getting two girls ready for school. I'm dropping one off. I am dropping the other one off. And then I have the baby with me. And then I come back. I get the nine to come sit. And then I run off to work. I come back. I make sure they eat and get ready. And I want her to come back at seven. She's worn out. I want her to get something to eat, probably hold the baby. And up to bed, she, she's gone. We've done that for one month. And it's been really, really hard. I... I I, I honestly, I'm not going to lie that I thought about, baby, I think you need to quit this job because <laughs> <laughs> this thing is hard. But every time when I want to open my mouth and say those dreams, those things, those words, I, 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 I see how hard she is working to make her job a reality for her. And I feel like I will be snatching her dreams. And I man up. Mm, mm. It's hard, but I man up. And she's like, baby, are you okay? And I say, yes, I am okay. But I have to figure out a way to make it work. I have to make her live the life that she wants to live, live accomplish her dreams, feels fulfilled. Wow. And now she's back to making the same like me because of this coronavirus thing, they immediately slashed her pay. So I'm hoping that after all of this passes, it was either that or she loses the job. So I said, take the pay cut and keep grinding. Uh, we don't know how long it's going to last. I don't know. I'm praying every day. I'm saying that, you know, she's, because she's working extremely, she, she didn't get off work the other day to 1 a.m. because she was trying to impress her boss or do something. So I see that struggle. I see that hard work. And I cannot take it from her. I have to man up. I have to do the extra work. It's not easy. It's no joke. But there's no other outcome. Yeah. I've not always been where I am, I guess, financially. We've not always been where we are financially. And so, as you mentioned at the top of the show, uh, when I went off to law school, I I think that 
Uh, my wife and I were living the American dream before. We weren't making a whole bunch of money. We made enough to have a house and a dog and a couple of children. And, you know, we had everything except for the white fence. And so uh, I decided to go to law school and she supported that idea for me to go to law school. She supported me, but it meant that I didn't work for three years, no substantial work. And for me, I look back now and I'm quite sure that I was depressed all three years of law school because I was not fulfilling my definition of being a man. I mean, I'm almost sure I was even a year and two afterwards because I had that deck of cards in my pocket yeah. and I looked down and dad said, this is what it means to be a man. You're not doing it. One year, two year, three year. Yep. And then when I went to work, I was not providing at that level four year, five year. And so for an individual who didn't have the same idea or definition of being a man, that idea of maleness, they might've been perfectly fine. If it meant that being a man meant that you didn't have to work, they were like, hey, it's great. But for me, because I had this definition of masculinity, maleness, being a man as a provider, it was depression. It was bad. It was a failure. And I chose to go to law school, but then I had to suffer the consequences of that yeah. because I couldn't meet those definitions. And so the great thing about America is you can decide on what your idea of being a man is because we don't have that solid institution that says this is a man, this is a woman. But again, going back to the idea of being extinct, very few individuals uh, are pulling out that deck of cards that says that the man should be the sole provider, the man should do this, yeah. the man should protect. Few folks are associated with that definition. Yeah. And you know, your wife is a badass, first of all. She, Dr. Nah, she, she, she's not playing games. I remember you were in law school. She was doing the most with the kids and getting her PhD done and just running. And, you know, you have Nelly there with the, with the three babies at home, the one who's not at home, and she's working. And she's, I didn't even know until recently that she was doing the job that she's doing. So when you have these women who are dynamic in their own right, how do you find that space for yourselves, right? And I, and I totally understand why, Harry, you're struggling. And Josh, I saw some of your experience. And I don't know if you were depressed, but you were down. It was a struggle. I, I saw that. And I think, for me, that's why this conversation is so important. Because I wish you both didn't feel that way, right? I wish it was such a normal thing that you could kind of, there was a flow and a cadence. Now you do it and I'm good. Now you do it and I'm good. And it doesn't matter if the wife is tops now and you're in the backseat, it doesn't matter. And there's just that flow, right? But I realize it's not how it is. And so one of the things that I swear to you, we've had these conversations, me and some of my girlfriends, where it's been like, you know what? I give up. I'm only going to date men who make more money than me. Why did this conversation come up? Because a lot of us have experienced situations where you date people who make less than you. And it's the things that come with it is exactly what both of you describe, right? Which is they feel bad that they have this deck of cards and their situation is not matching it. And then you feel like, well, hold on, but I'm here to support you. I don't understand why my salary is making you feel bad. But I think what a lot of us didn't understand is not a salary that's making you feel bad, is the fact that there's something about what we're doing with our lives that the world did not prepare both of us for. And so now the roles have reversed. We don't know how to deal with y'all. Y'all don't know how to deal with us. And it's real confusing, right? And so some people will say, okay, that's gold digger mentality. And my view is, until you've been in the situation, Josh, that you describe, 
it's very, very hard to understand when you're feeling that way, your wife, what she has to go through to support you in feeling that way when it feels like you don't want her to succeed. Because that's how it lands on us, right? It's like, okay, so you're sad that I make more, like for real? I don't understand. But that's not what you're saying, but that's how it comes across, right? And then we start finding ways to shrink ourselves, right? And to say, okay, well, he's feeling bad. So the next time we go out to eat, I can't take him to a fancy restaurant because like I'm flaunting my money. So we're going to go to Burger King, okay? And get that $3 for the burger. As opposed to, like, I've seen this happen enough times where women who understand where their men are coming from in those situations find ways to shrink themselves to support their partners and to buoy their confidence during that time, during that period. And it's hard. It's just hard. I don't know what both the experiences have been, but I've seen that happen. I've experienced some of that. And after a while, you're just like, man, I just wish our boys weren't raised to just think that they're less of a man if their wives are making more money or their partners are making more money, you know? I don't know if we are raised to think that our partners, we are less of a, like, I don't think that I have said that or Josh has even echoed that and we were raised worlds apart, right? We just met in America. And um, Josh said he feels like when he's not providing, in that sentence, there was no who was making more and who was making less. He needs to provide. And uh, my understanding of providing is that uh, the bills are covered, what the house needs, the house gets. Whatever my wife makes is an excess to whatever it is I'm making. It's It can go to the savings account or, or something like that. So unless Josh tells me to the contrary, but I think that that's what I heard him echo out. Uh, for me, it's the same thing. I have always pushed my wife. I'm like, what is it that you want to do and what do you want to accomplish? It's for her growth as a person so that she should feel like I'm self-fulfilled and I'm achieving what I want to achieve. I have obligations. I have things that I know when when I look at a house that we want to buy, I say, first of all, can my income cover for that house? Mm-hmm. Not our income. Mm-hmm. My income. Can I pay for that house? Can I pay the bills? Can I do this? Can I do X, Y, and Z? Her income, it's a substitute. It's an addition to mine. So I don't see, I should not be able to see my, my wife as a threat or as anything. And I like uh, you know, I like fame. So I like if I'm not famous, my wife better be famous. So what either ways I'm I'm living behind somebody or somebody's <laughs> living behind me. It works just fine for me. So I'm not threatened by a powerful woman. I actually like a woman who can sit me down because I can get a little too powerful. So I actually like a strong woman that can tell me that, baby, this idea, because I have like two million app ideas in a second and she's like, calm down, snap it off and calm me down. I cannot deal with a woman who is gonna tell me that all those two million ideas you have are good. I are think good? that that's, that's weak. Yeah. <laughs> you understand? So yeah. for me, there are people who have insecurities that we should look at those insecurities and see how we can help them. But I don't think that universally it's a man thing, right? And then in our culture as Africans, we, African men are also, uh, I've noticed this within the Nigerian community, they have to be on top. They have to, the woman has to kind of like, glorified them and when the woman is working you pass your paycheck to the man and he manages everything and 
that is a culture situation that needs to be looked at and examined. But then in other circumstances, it's a man who's probably insecure, maybe the way he grew up and so, but that's, those are for me just unique cases, yeah. right? Uh, like I said, I think, I don't know if Josh is going to have a, a different say, but I don't know if we mind that our, our spouses make more money than us. No, I, we, I'm, I'm on the same, I'm on the same page as you. I think you, you stated eloquently. I, I share the same sentiment. It's not about, the amount of income that my wife has. It's, I have been taught this, or I have learned, or I have understood it to be so that this is what you need to do to be a male. Within myself, I have to ask myself, are you measuring up to that? Yeah. And if I'm not, it doesn't matter. If I've been taught that you need to be able to drive a Cadillac and you don't have a Cadillac, you're not a man. You know, whatever the case may be, if, yep. if you have this idea that this is what it means to be a man and you're not being it, you have an issue with that. And that's what I think a lot of the men that you're referring to, uh, you know, they have. Because if you are making substantially more, your tastes are likely going to be different. Yep. And so I know that if you want the Lexus, you can buy it, but I can't do it for you. And so the, the question becomes, am I providing Yes. And you say, yes, you're providing me with what I want you to provide me with. So you're great, just like you are. Yep. But I have to self-check and say, am I providing according to my personal standard? And yes. I think that's what most men are, because the game changed and the rules changed on us. There was a time, according to our grandfathers and fathers, where women were forbidding to earn money and work. Yep. And they were taught mentally, you provide, you pay all the bills. And now the playing cards have paid. They didn't have any say in it. And now they only have this toolbox and, and they only know one thing. And until they unlearn it and learn something else, it's it's a challenge. Yeah. And, you know, the reason and, why... And, and, the and reason Amy, why... I have to... I, let me add to that because, I mean, it's a topic about masculinity, but we cannot also just forget about the fact that if your income changes your personality, then that's a problem. Mm-hmm. We cannot say it doesn't happen. If a, if a, like my wife is making all of this money, if something changes about her, we have to examine that. We cannot say now because she's making all of this money, then I'm insecure. You understand? So we have to look at a holistic picture that because I have seen my friend's marriage falters because the woman became a, a, a registered nurse and she felt like she is self-sufficient. She's, she doesn't need him. She can do whatever she wants. She walks into a village, she buys a car and don't communicate with him. She's building a house in Africa he doesn't know about. And when he wants to talk, she says, you're insecure because I'm making more money than you. Yeah. I think that it's a complex picture. And now he cannot even talk because if he, if he wants to talk, they say, oh, you're talking because she's making more money. You want to shut her down. And, and now they box him in a little container and then, you know, he doesn't have a voice. So... We have to look at it. We have to look at it from the woman's point, from the man's, because they're insecure men, but they're, they're women who change because they have that power, that financial power, because and, money and, and no, will change people. And no doubt, but I'll play devil's advocate here, because sometimes what I see is you are, and you, you talk about the example of Ni- Nigerians, and that's casting a broad net, but I've seen it in a lot of cultures where who has the purse makes the decisions right so for a lot of women if you're not working whatever car he wants you all to buy is what you you guys are gonna have 
right? You may pick the house or you may have choices, but it's going to be where he pegs it. When they start making, when women start making their own money, it's freedom. It's to say, okay, now, I mean, Harry, think about it. When we were growing up, the fact that some women had to go to their husbands and say, can you please give me money for body lotion? Now, I can buy whatever body lotion I want, so that's what I'm going to do. If you make that on a bigger scale, you say, okay, now I don't want to live in an apartment anymore. I make money, and so we can move into a house. I want to do that, right? So there's there's a part of it that's human. I don't think it's gendered. It's human where when you start earning more, it gives you the freedom to do things that on a personal level you've always wanted to do. And so if your partner is not on that same wavelength, it can go south, right? Because a man could have gone, and we've seen this happen before. There's some men who've gone out and bought a car and brought it home. And it's cool. And the women go with it, right? Because the way we were set up is that's what a husband can do. Some men consult, some don't. But when a woman starts making money, if she pulls that same move, people just say, oh, so now you think you're, you're too much, huh? You've arrived. So I think... You're right that we have to look at these situations independently, but I, I just wanted to color that by saying anybody who starts making money that they didn't have, male, female, married, single, the reality is you start to live the life you wanted to live, but you couldn't live because you didn't have that money, right? And I think that's where the, um, the tensions come in. Okay. But this has been fantastic for me. I think... Our communities need more of these conversations. I think, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, how do I raise a son by myself? I can't be his mother and his father. You've got four girls. Josh, you've got, you know, a son and a daughter. And I understand masculinity is changing in the way you define it. You're going to teach Naomi one thing versus what you teach Josh Jr., right? In terms of what, what their roles are and what to expect. In closing... I just want to understand from you all any parting words for our audience, but also what is it you would like to see different when it comes to conversations about masculinity? Well, let me go ahead. For me, <laughs> you followed me a little bit on Facebook and you know that oftentimes I get into conversations that bring up words like toxic masculinity and we didn't get to touch that. <laughs> because well, we can touch it now. You know, the, the, the last the last episode, I had Samadego Ki of um, the Dynasty TV series on, and we were talking just about toxic masculinity and how that shows up for him. So that is a term I wasn't used to. I hadn't heard, actually, until we had that conversation last week. So let me hear it from your perspective. But anybody that listens to us on this show, myself, I would speak for myself, and maybe some of what uh, Josh has had to say about him taking that leadership role of saying, I have to provide, I have to protect. And an extreme feminist, which is the group I classify them, who always brand us, men who say, this is what we have to do within this context. We are labeled as toxic males because they feel like we're not giving women or we're just not giving women their liberty and all of that stuff. But I hope that from this conversation, they can see that we have grown into a society where we think that a man has to provide. We're not saying a woman is not going to provide. But like Jeff said, if you need to drive a Cadillac and you're not driving a Cadillac, you've not made it. And you keep, you need, you don't, and I'm not going to say you're failed, but you just need to keep working. Maybe you're just one step almost there to get that Cadillac and you just need to keep grinding. 
I like to encourage men to, for me, my goal is to encourage men to see the vision that myself and Josh have, that you have to step up. You have to be a born leader. You have to be able to take that opportunity. You have to be able to, to guide. You don't have to be the one that's beating on your woman. You don't have to be the abuser. You don't have to be the one taking advantage of people. You have to be the one shaping the narrative, the one that's shaping the direction that things need to go positively. So for me, when I hear things about toxic masculinity, it's to shut down people like us and then have men that depend on women and stay at home and play video games. And then they have a problem because the men don't want to work, the men don't want to do nothing, but that's the man that you're creating. That's the same man that you want him to cry, you want him to have emotions, to wear his emotions on his sleeve and relax and just be weak and, and stay on the couch. You don't want a man who's who's going to be like, there needs to be order in this house. And when you have that kind of man, then you brand him. You know, so we have to be able to define this narrative to understand that the, the futures we are fighting that that future should not change. It should be including, it should be inclusive, but it should not overwhelmingly change. We should include women into that conversation, but I think that men should still be able to be leaders with women that are accompanying them to the journey. Okay. All right, Josh. I love it. I would just say that uh, you have to be cognizant of what is informing an individual's viewpoints. Mm. That is the failure that I see happen so frequently. And I have four sisters, of course, who date. And I mean, let's be honest, many people, and I'm guilty of it as well, uh, when we talk about dating from elementary, middle, high school, you know, that age, many people spend more time thinking about what college they're going to go to, what to watch. Yeah. More time invested in that than who they date. Yep. So, and then they're surprised. And so you have to understand what informs an individual's viewpoint. And then you can almost already know what their definition of maleness and masculinity is. Yep. But you have to take that deeper look. And yep. I think that that's why historically you had parents and elders choosing mates because they had the foresight and that deeper vision and look yep. to say they have the same system of understanding masculinity and femininity and that sort of thing. And so what I'm saying is that understand what informs the individual's viewpoints, but also understand the rules of the society in which your son uh, will ultimately be brought up in because that's going to determine what he needs in that toolbox. Yep. Uh, he may need all the cards. He may need cards from each continent. He may need <laughs> cards from just one. But if you come to, as uh, Harry said, America and this idea of same-sex marriage, you're confronting it for the first time, you are ill-equipped to function in that society. Yep. And so you may even need a wild card uh, for when you come to America <laughs> or another place and say, I've got this deck of cards, but I got two or three for these things that I don't know what's going to happen. I have to be willing to be flexible. Yeah. Uh, but for understanding masculinity and maleness, just know that it's something that we're taught. And if you understand how an individual is taught that definition of maleness, you can better understand why they have these views and opinions. And uh, it's very difficult to change because, you know, you've been taught that. And, and, and just, just to clarify the definition of a Cadillac, because I know I said it, it's not a material thing, right? And so, as you mentioned, yeah. Harry, it could be a spiritual thing. You may feel like in order to be a man, you need to be here spiritually. You may also feel like in order to be a man, you need to be here physically and look a certain way. And so whatever it is, you have been taught something. 
Yeah. And you have to live up to it. And when you don't live up to it, you're not a man. The same things in nature, right? If a tree is supposed to bear fruit and it doesn't bear fruit, well, if it's an apple tree and it doesn't bear apple fruits and it's not an apple tree, it's less than. It's a tree, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> so until you're doing what, what you've been taught a man is supposed to do, until you're bearing those fruit, yeah. then you're not, you're not that. Yeah. And that point is an excellent one in terms of what's informing a person's viewpoint. Because I go back to the comment I made about being in a conversation with, with sister girls and talking about dating a man who makes more, the, when people hear that, they, the initial reaction would be, isn't that gold, being a gold digger? But when you step back, if your experience is for some men, it's important that they make more money than you. And I kid you not, I've had these conversations. I had a, an acquaintance um, who was a lawyer. We're, having, we're at a conference one, and we're having this very same conversation. And he said to me, listen, if my wife makes $25,000 much more than me, more than me, I'm cool. $50,000 more than me, $100,000 now we're pushing it. $150,000, I can't, right? And, and for him, the more the money, the more the power. So he was very much looking at it from the vantage point of who has the power in this dynamic. And so if you're a woman and you've been raised to think that, you know, the man provides, you already understand what happens to some men when your lifestyle that your salary can afford is one that he can't afford and he starts to act some kind of way, right? You don't want to deal with that. You don't want to deal with that. So it's like, I need to just be in a lane where I eliminate this problem. Right, as opposed to I want your money. I don't want your money. What I'm trying to understand is, or, or what I'm trying to do is, have you been in a space where you're secure with your stuff, right? So that we don't have to deal with this. Because again, as a society, most of us haven't taught our men to do exactly what you're saying, which is define what masculinity means for you, achieve that, and everything else is gravy, right? So I'm getting the thumbs up from Josh. They're not going to be able to see this, but <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much for what has been a fantastic conversation. I hope you come back to talk about whatever else, but I don't think Josh, I want to give you an, an opportunity to talk a little bit about, I know you do a lot of mentoring work for young men. I do want you to talk a little bit about that. And Harry, also, before we close, just so you can share with people what some of your other endeavors are, when people come to my show, I just want people to know not just one aspect of them that they talk about on the show, but what else they're up to. So if people want to support you, follow you, they know how to do that. So, Josh? Yeah, definitely. I've, uh, I've served as a mentor for my entire adult life, starting from maybe... 19, 20, 21, I started with the mentoring program. And I've always tried to have a mentee again because I grew up without the, the father figure that I yearned for. And so I always say that I'm trying to save myself. That means that my young self looking for a male figure to teach him the ropes, the ways, manhood, I always yearn for that. And so I try to be that for younger males. Uh, as much as I can. And so I've been part of a number of different mentoring programs right now. I'm working with one with the uh, magistrate court here locally in Clayton County, Georgia, near the airport. And we have this mentoring program called Lions of Justice. And what does it mean to be a lion, right? But that's what it's called. And it's not a mentoring program that is just uh, a year long or a couple of months. It's lifelong. Mm. It's a lifelong investment. And it's not one that's aiming to get you into college or get you a job. It's really to help you become a lion and what that means. 
And so uh, that's one of the mentoring programs. I'm really proud of that. I had a teacher in high school who really went above and beyond. And so as a professor, as a teacher, I try to be that for my students. I would not have gone to college without them. First in my family to go to college, grandparents included. And so uh, parents, grandparents, older siblings, even uncles and aunties. And so requiring us to fill out a, a college application, fill it out in class, walking us to the mailbox and putting a stamp on it at school, I would not have applied to college. And so I understand that sometimes you literally have to drag people to do the right thing and then they'll learn it. That being said, one of the initiatives that I have, Teach Us Justice, Teaching Ethics and Cultural History for Urban Stakeholders. And so I teach criminal justice class and that sort of thing. And I don't think that law enforcement, the courts or corrections can properly serve the community without understanding the ethical and the cultural history of the people they serve. To that end, uh, we tour the southeastern United States as of now, St. Augustine, Savannah, Charleston, Montgomery, Tuskegee, Selma, Alabama, those types of places looking at the historical evolution of law policy and social justice in the United States to better inform the community and folks in the legal space um, on how to serve. And so that's uh, one of my outside projects, you know, outside of work. Okay, thank you. Thank you guys. I knew both of you would be very entertaining guests and you did not disappoint. <laughs> Nice to meet you as well. Yeah, definitely. I was up in Chicago uh, recently. So next time I'm there, we definitely have to connect and, or when you're here in Atlanta. And if uh, you can share out both our informations, uh, bum, then that'd be great. I will. Yeah, I have an elder sister that lives in Atlanta. Our elder sister lives out there. So we're usually out there fairly, uh, fairly often. So yeah, we'll, we'll run into each other. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, exchange contact info. Yeah, that would be nice, Abby. All right. Thank you all. Have a good night. All right, thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Please share your thoughts in the comment section or by emailing av at mamatalktod.com. Continue the conversation in your homes and communities. And when you join us next week, invite a friend or many. For more diverse perspectives on everyday issues from everyday people around the globe, subscribe to our podcast at mamatalktod.com forward slash a different take. And join our online community by following us on Twitter and Instagram. Until we meet again, I'm your host, A.B. Mambo. Sigashina. Stay well.